five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Before I get to the interview, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Canada. Penguin approached me to get the word out on two books written by astronaut Scott Kelly. Here's what you need to know about both books. 520 total days in space, and a record-setting year aboard the International Space Station. Astronaut Scott Kelly's memoir, Endurance, and children's book, My Journey to the Stars, tell the story of how a kid who barely scraped through high school became one of the most decorated astronauts of his generation. Endurance is a candid account of his remarkable voyage, of his colorful formative years, and of a future mission to Mars. My Journey to the Stars tells the story of how both Scott and his identical twin brother Mark grew up to achieve their dreams of becoming an astronaut. Both books are on sale now and available through the SpaceQ website at spaceq.ca. Today on SpaceQ, I'll be talking with Dr. Michael Daly, Associate Professor at York University. We'll be talking about the international, though NASA-led, origins, spectral interpretation, resource identification, security regolith explorer mission, or as it's commonly called, OSIRIS-REx. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will rendezvous with near-Earth asteroid Bennu next August, where it will conduct a series of science investigations, including returning a sample to Earth to be analyzed. NASA says the mission will help scientists investigate how planets formed and how life began, as well as improve our understanding of asteroids that could impact Earth. The OSIRIS spacecraft launched on September 8, 2016. Canada is participating in the mission by providing the OSIRIS-REx Laser Altimeter, or OLA, which will create a 3D map of asteroid Bennu's shape, along with helping with navigation. Dr. Daly is the principal investigator of the Canadian science team. York University's Planetary Exploration Instrumentation Laboratory is the lead university for the Canadian OLA instrument contribution. While York University is taking the OLA instrumentation lead, other Canadian contributors include the University of Calgary, University of British Columbia, University of Winnipeg, University of Toronto, and the Royal Ontario Museum. The mission to asteroid Bennu will continue until March 2021, when the spacecraft will return to Earth, arriving two and a half years later in September 2023. At that point, the sample return capsule will return to Utah, where it will be collected and analyzed. Welcome, Mike, to the SpaceQ podcast. Good morning, Mark. Could you briefly explain how this mission came about and why it's important? Sure. Well, the the mission came about, um, it has a long history from a U.S. perspective. It was proposed previously, or a similar mission was proposed previously, to a different uh, NASA funding opportunity. And it wasn't successful, not because the mission was uh, deemed poor from a science perspective, but it was really a question of, can you actually do all this under the, the cost cap that was in place at the time? So as happens for many of these missions, it was... Um, 
recycled and improved and matured and proposed in the uh, in a NASA program called New Frontiers, and where it was down selected to along with two other missions for further study, and then ultimately we um, we were successful as a team. In the Canadian context, it really came about partly because of the the success of our uh, previous Mars mission um, on the Phoenix lander that launched in 2007. So the University of Arizona team that we worked with on that mission called me up and, and said, hey, let's talk about a LIDAR contribution to OSIRIS-REx. And that was really the, the start of a conversation that resulted in a concept, stu- concept for the instrument and, and our participation in the two successful uh, NASA proposal rounds. So the mission has been ongoing now for a year. And before we get into some of the technical details of the, the LIDAR that Canada is uh, contributing, um, how's the, what's the status of the spacecraft right now? How's it doing? Yeah, everything's very healthy. We're 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 really really happy with the, the status and performance of the spacecraft. So no problems to report, and that's just the way we like it. Perfect. Uh, when's the next uh, maneuver that it has to do? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, I, I don't tend to keep track of the the uh, the schedule like that. I'm so focused on making sure that our instrument is is healthy, and and now we're getting down to the um, you know, final stages where we really have to be be ready to use the instrument in earnest, and we're going to get reams of data back from it. So that's really where I've been been focusing my uh, attention. Okay, so um, let's talk about uh, the asteroid itself. Um, uh, how big is asteroid Bennu, and why was it selected? Um, Bennu is about 500 meters in diameter, um, so so it's not. A large asteroid, but it's certainly not not small either. Um, it was selected for for a variety of reasons. If you think about the broad asteroid population, we you know we've got more than half a million asteroids that we know of. Some of those are uh, asteroids that we can easily get to and return a sample from. So that that takes our uh, pool of asteroids down some. Then we need to look at things like the the science target. So this is a particular class of asteroid in terms of what it's made up with of that we actually don't understand very much about. So it's an important science target. As well, it's a near-Earth asteroid, and that comes um, that's important because of the security context here on Earth. We're really the first generation that can think about protecting ourselves from catastrophic asteroid collisions, and Bennu is one of the asteroids that actually crosses the Earth's orbit and, and has a very small but but significant probability of impact over the next couple hundred years. So we want to learn more about these things in order to uh, protect the planet in, in the future. And then only some of these asteroids are really uh, good candidates for actually going down, grabbing a sample, and bringing them back. They have to be a certain size, otherwise there's not enough gravity to really uh, negotiate and maneuver around them for the period of time uh, we have, and they can't be spinning too fast. So there's a lot of uh, sort of detailed engineering criteria that uh, that makes a mission like this possible. So that rapidly gets us from 500,000 plus down to 
to a handful of potential candidates. And then we, for a variety of reasons, we, we sub-selected Bennu out of that handful. So it's 500 meters in size approximately. Um, approximately. Yeah, approximately. Um, uh, and if I understand correctly, it's a C-type asteroid. Could you explain a little bit about what a C-type asteroid is and how prevalent that is? Sure. Um, these are uh, these are only a, a portion of the asteroid population. They're very, very dark objects, so you can think about them kind of like lumps of coal. Um, they have a lot of carbon content, and they really represent the the primitive, most primitive material we have access to in the solar system. So in terms of a, a window into solar system formation and, and what materials um, were around, then these asteroids are, are hugely valuable science targets. As well, we know a lot about the asteroid population from meteorites that, that find their way to Earth and we can pick them up. We actually um, don't have that many good examples of this particular subtype of um, the C-type asteroids. And the ones we do, you know, can be affected by the Earth's environment before we pick them up. So um, we're really expecting to get a lot of otherwise unknowable information from this, from an actual pristine sample return back to the Earth. Um, okay. Now, you said that there's uh, a small chance that uh, Bennu will pose a threat to the Earth, um, but it does pose a, a little bit of a threat, which means that there is the potential that it could, uh, I suppose, impact the Earth, uh, but not for some time. Um, even at 500 meters, is there some way we could deal with the asteroid if, uh, if, if we did find that it was coming on a collision course to the Earth? Well, the key with asteroids and, and thinking about ways to, to move them around, th this is not a subject matter that I'm an expert in, but it, it really has to do with how early we can predict um, such a potential collision because the earlier we can predict, the, the less interaction that will be necessary in order to mitigate the collision. So so we, we really want to get better at um, tracking these things uh, and improving our predictions, and that's one of the goals of the mission. So it sounds like um, one of the objectives, as you said, is, is to deal with the security issue. And uh, this obviously is going to provide us with a knowledge base that will help us go as we go forward uh, to the point where at some point in the future, we'll probably be able to identify some of these and we'll actually have to deal with them. Yeah, that's a goal. Uh, the, the challenge with asteroids is because they're small, they actually get pushed around uh, pretty easily. So there are very small forces that we we want to understand um, that act over long periods of time that, that move asteroids around and stop us from being able to predict uh, their future pass over, you know, in some cases, hundreds of years, we, we would like to predict their pass. And so we'll uh, one of the science goals of the of the mission is to produce a very good model of this some of these effects so that we can make sure that we understand them and and potentially apply them to other asteroids so in the future. Aside from the uh, security aspect of it, um, what are some of the key scientific objectives? 
Well, the scientific objectives are really found in the in the name of the mission. Uh, so every letter in the in Osiris is a scientific objective. So these uh, we already talked about these asteroids being very carbon rich and primitive bodies that that give us an insight into early solar system formation. And that really is the O, which is origins in OSIRIS-REx. So we're going to return and analyze a pristine carbon-rich asteroid sample and understand the makeup of, of organics within the sample. And, and also um, water content is, is also important. Um, the SI and OSIRIS are spectral interpretation. So we, we sit here on Earth, we look up at telescopes, we see asteroids, we get some information back optically, and we want to understand from that information what we're likely looking at. And the more asteroids we can visit and understand and connect what's actually there with our ground-based operation, uh, observations, the better we'll understand the other 500,000 we can't go to. So that's the spectral interpretation part of, of this. It's helping to, to solidify our understanding from ground-based uh, observations through a direct measurement. Um, the RI, next RI is resource identification. So we're going to look at the, the chemistry and mineralogy of these asteroids. The next S is security. And then the Rex is uh, for regolith explorer. So we're going to go down, grab a, a piece of the regolith, which is the loose material on the top of the asteroid, and bring it home. So those are our science objectives in a nutshell. All right. So speaking about the sample, how will you decide uh, where to take the sample from? Oh, so that's a, a complicated balance. Um, so first and foremost, we need to ensure the success of the sampling and the safety of the spacecraft. So we'll, we have a, a lot of effort going into making sure that we can map the, the surface features of the asteroid um, well enough that we can identify a safe region. Secondarily, um, the sampling device we have can pick up only loose material. So, you know, we're not going to send an explosive or a drill or anything like that. We need to pick up loose material of which we have good reason to believe there's a lot of on, on the surface of Bennu. So we need to select an area where um, there's a, a pool of this loose material and it's uh, the appropriate size for the sampling device. Then after those, which are the two primary uh, drivers, we, you know, if there's any science reason to differentiate where we pick, um, that'll be the third set of, of criteria that gets um, balanced off. And how many samples can you take? We will just take one. Um, we, can take, we can take more than one. But that would only be necessary if we somehow failed at a, a sampling attempt. If we get a sample and we're sure we have a sample of uh, just about any amount, we will bring it back because the sampling, although you know not landing like on a, another planet, this this uh, sampling is the most um, dangerous part of the mission from from the point of view of spacecraft safety. And uh, how large are, are, will the sample be? So our requirement where we say we're successful and we can achieve all our science goals, so that's um, 
analyzing a portion of the sample in our labs and doing all the analysis that's planned, as well as archiving sample for future generations. We can do all that in 60 grams. So that's that's a seems like a very small amount to go out there and back, but it's more than enough. Uh, I think many of us would be disappointed if we didn't get something that's closer to a kilogram than 60 grams. Okay. Uh, but since it's such a small sample, uh, will what's brought back be truly representative of the, the whole asteroid? Well, that's one of the reasons why we're spending you know, about a year getting to know the asteroid is we're going to have good maps of uh, mineral and elemental abundances across the whole asteroid. And, and we can answer that question. Um, you know, it, it's quite likely that the surface of the asteroid is well mixed and it won't matter too much where we sample from, but um, it's not necessarily the case. It may be that the spacecraft safety and probability of successful sampling sort of trumps where we get the sample from, but we'll still be able to put that sample in, in context uh, with the whole asteroid and its makeup. So, you know, the, the detailed answer to that question, uh, we'll start to understand a year from now when we, we, we realize that maybe some of the things we've thought about this asteroid uh, aren't exactly true, which is often the case when you do one of these space missions. Uh, as part of Canada's participation in the mission, um, we'll be getting a sample of, of the, uh, the regolith. Where will that sample be analyzed, and are there any risks in bringing it back to Earth? So in terms of where the sample will be analyzed uh, and how Canada will curate its portion of the asteroid, those plans are still in work, so I, I'm really uh, not able to speak about them right now. Um, but it's it's clearly important. We're investing, you know, our significant amount of money in, in this mission. One of the reasons to do that is to, to have access to the sample for um, present uh, scientific community, but also to put it away uh, for future generations as we improve analysis techniques and laboratory instruments. Um, so those plans are, are definitely uh, starting to, to take shape. We still have some you know, quite a few years left to solidify those. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's early to, to have to have all those nailed down. Yeah. The sample, the sample is not coming back till 2023, if I, if I remember correctly. So you've got six years to figure it out, but, uh, the sample will be in Canada though, that, that we get. Yeah. So we get a, a portion of the sample, uh, sort of in, in rough alignment with the, portion of the money we spent relative to the total budget. So um, I think the number is something like 4% of the sample. So you know, if we get a kilogram of sample, this is a, a significant amount of sample, and it's our first pristine sample from from outside the, the Earth. So it's a significant uh, scientific opportunity for us. And what can we learn from, from the sample? Well, so that's a big set of questions. So we have probably, uh, I don't know what the number is, but, you know, we have many tens of people on the science team, uh, many of which, you know, have very clear ideas of, of what kind of analysis that we, that they, they want to do. 
but you know, effectively, it's everything from mineralogy, mineralogy and, and 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 chemistry. It's physical properties. So, um, what's the thermal conductivity? You know, what are the magnetic properties? How does light reflect off this material? Um, to how much uh, water is there? How many organics? What kind of organic material is in this? The, the questions are, are very broad. Okay. So uh, there was one mission that did bring a sample back in, in 2006, and that was the Stardust mission. Uh, does this compare to that mission? I mean, how much, what size of a sample did they manage to bring back? So Stardust was uh, bringing back a different kind of sample, and I... I, I don't know too much about that instrument, so I'm uh, or that mission. So I would probably refrain from talking too much about it. Uh, the similarity to our mission is really in the sample return capsule. So it's the return technology once we get back to the Earth, and how we get that down to to the Earth. That's really the similarity for us. In terms of the mission itself, we're we're more like a Japanese mission called Hayabusa, where they brought back a sample of um, an asteroid called Itakawa, although that was a very different kind of uh, asteroid, a different type of asteroid, and uh, and so uh, there's there's uh, not a lot of commonality in terms of what we expect to learn from our our material. Okay, so Canada is providing the. Uh OSIRIS-REx laser altimeter. Um, it's a LIDAR. What's the difference? Actually, before I even get to that, can you just explain what a LIDAR is to our audience? Sure. So a LIDAR is a, a laser rangefinder, essentially. So it, you send out a, a very short pulse of light, and you measure the time when you sent that pulse out. That pulse travels at the speed of light, reflects off something, travels back, and you can measure that that reflected pulse and you can just do a, a time delta between when you sent the pulse out, when you received the pulse, and because you know the speed of light, you can figure out the distance. So that's a LIDAR. And in this case, it's going to be used to create a, in part, a 3D map uh, of Bennu's shape. Is that right? Yeah. So we, there are, so that's the major science goal uh, for this instrument. The, the instrument also, given that it provides uh, absolute ranges from the spacecraft to the asteroid, is also very useful for the navigation team to understand exactly what's going on with the spacecraft as we try and navigate this you know, very small, very um, low-gravity object. Uh, that's a big challenge. So we, we have both science goals and and navigation goals uh, for the instrument. So Canada provided the LIDAR on the NASA Mars Phoenix lander. Uh, what's the difference between the LIDAR on that mission and this LIDAR? So that, that LIDAR was an atmospheric LIDAR. And what it did was it sent a pulse out up into, vertically up into the atmosphere of Mars and it measured the uh, distributed scattered signal back. So what I mean by that is, you know, there was not a single hard object. We weren't measuring just, you know, the front surface of a cloud or the front surface of a dust layer. We were getting information about the whole profile of dust and clouds in the atmosphere. So you, you've got signal over, 
you know, in some, in some cases, the whole 10, 15 or 20 kilometers, uh, of, uh, a reflected signal that we got back to that LIDAR. The OSIRIS-REx LIDAR is, is, has a different type of analysis that it does, a different type of optical receiver. And it really is set up to, to measure the uh, distance to one single hard target. There is some commonality between the two, and the commonality is that in OLA we have two lasers, one that operates uh, you know, beyond, up to and beyond seven kilometers away from this asteroid, and one that operates uh, below a kilometer uh, in altitude from the asteroid, and that the laser that operates at the further distance is a, or what I call it, a direct descendant, I guess, of the Phoenix laser. So it really, um, it, it's an almost identical laser to the one that we sent to Mars. Okay. Now, since that mission, um, has LIDAR technology changed? Uh, well, LIDAR technology, so since the Phoenix mission was your question? Yes. So LIDAR technology uh, does change. Um, we're somewhat limited by sometimes how we can assimilate those changes into a space mission because we have a lot of limitations. Uh, some of the limitations just are related to how big the instrument can be and how much power it can draw. So these limitations don't tend to be uh, as as tightly constrained, you know, in Earth-based systems as, as they are in space systems. So the, so the answer is yes. How much new technology have we assimilated into this uh, mission in terms of the piece parts? I think the the uniqueness of OLA really has to do with its overall um, configuration and what it can do compared to previous space LIDARs. To give you an example, the, the real key to what makes OLA unique uh, compared to any other LIDARs that you may have seen talked about on other missions around Mars, around Mercury, around um, even asteroid Itakawa that I spoke about previously, is that it has a scanning mirror and it has a very high repetition rate on its laser. So that means that we can measure distances at up to 10,000 times per second. So um, in order to make use of that, you know, if you're, if you're orbiting a planet, you may be traveling, your spacecraft may be traveling at something like seven kilometers per second. But around a microgravity asteroid like this, we're talking about you know, 10 or tens of centimeters per second. So in order to make use of 10,000 measurements per second and not measure the same point on an asteroid many, many times, we actually need to have the instrument point itself. And so we have uh, a very fast scanning mirror that can point the laser across the asteroid in a two-dimensional pattern. Um, I need to think of a new analogy because, you know, I often say it's kind of like an old TV screen and I lose all the young people, but essentially <laughs> we move the laser in lines back and forth uh, in, in a big rectangular pattern. What size physically is the, uh, is Ola? Ola 
is the proverbial two bread boxes. So one of those bread boxes has the lasers and the scanning mirror and all the optics. And the other bread box has uh, the command and control computer, some of the timing circuitry and and the power uh, electronics. So let's say in width, like 30 centimeters wide or? So it's the the optical uh, portion is about 250 millimeters by 300 millimeters by 250 millimeters in, in round figures. Uh, the electronics is more like uh, 250 by 250 by 150. So, you know, definitely sort of bread box size. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If I was a space mining entrepreneur, would I be interested in mining asteroid Bennu? Or would I look elsewhere? If you're looking for, uh, you know, a large cache of precious metals, which um, this is not my my research area, but I, I think that the, the little bit of knowledge I have of some of the economic cases, uh, it's really the precious metal uh, mining that might be interesting for, for returns. Um, you would not be interested if you were interested in, the potential to find water to, you know, use as fuel and other things to further explore the solar system, then an asteroid like Bennu may be interesting. I guess we'll find out once we understand how much of that is out there. So uh, we don't have an idea at this point how much water content there is in, in Bennu, and that's one of the things that we might actually learn from this mission. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And of course, if it does have a higher concentration of water, then it certainly would be uh, useful uh, to a mining enterprise for uh, using it to get a water and both uh, also for the propellant side of things. Um, what will happen to the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft after it's completed its mission? I mean, in 2023, it's coming back to Earth. It's going to, uh, or it'll be back at Earth, and it's going to deposit uh, its uh, sample uh, return canister into the into Utah. But what actually happens to the spacecraft? What kind of orbit is it going to be in? Oh, well, I think it's still open to, to uh, future studies, what we do with the spacecraft. It's uh, quite likely that we'll have uh, still a functioning spacecraft. Um, some or all of the instruments will probably still be functioning. And so if there's fuel in a functioning spacecraft and functioning instruments, then you know it, it represents an opportunity that's fairly inexpensive to uh, take that spacecraft and you know redeploy it for another set of science goals, you know, especially when compared to developing a new mission, developing new spacecraft, new instruments, and then taking the risk of launch and successful operation. So uh, I believe the plan is that once we successfully depart from the proximity of Bennu, that we'll start studying uh, what opportunities exist for the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, uh, whether anything comes of those opportunities, uh, will depend on how much fuel, whether there's uh, financial support available because it costs money just to run these spacecraft, um, and then what observation opportunities exist and, and 
how uh, important they are from a science perspective. So I, th- I think we're uh, a few years away from even starting those studies. Sure. Uh, I'm curious, though, <clears throat> assuming that there is enough fuel to keep it into uh, an orbit uh, where it doesn't decay too fast and it, it still has a little bit of propellant left on board, do you think the, the spacecraft itself, thinking off the top of my head, uh, could be used as, because it does have a suite of cameras, could be used as a, uh, an asteroid detection system where it's, you know, looking outwards and it's uh, searching for other asteroids? Well, we've already used the spacecraft to look for asteroids in places that are difficult to see from from an Earth perspective. But I, I think the major use of this spacecraft in the future would be to do close flybys of, of other asteroids that we already know are there. Uh, and use the fact that this spacecraft was designed and developed for proximity operations around an asteroid. So, you know, make use of the fact that, you know, these are relatively small uh, cameras on the spacecraft, but, you know, the the real advantage compared to very large telescopes we can deploy on Earth is is it's close. So I, I suspect that the missions under consideration will all be asteroid flybys uh, rather than you know sitting there and staring out looking for asteroids that we don't know exist okay well you've given us a lot of information you've got uh, a lot of planning ahead of you uh, before the uh, uh, spacecraft rendezvous with uh, osiris rex next summer uh, i'd like to thank mike for being on the space Cube podcast and i hope but uh, sometime in the future once uh, uh, osiris rex is at uh, asteroid Bennu, we'll get a chance to, to talk again thank you well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find Space Q on Twitter at Canada in Space and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at The Space Q and don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher and if we're connected, you'll get Space Q articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing review if you're so inclined. Inclined.